Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Oh my god, what a great guest today. This is one that uh, we I was working on for a while to get set up. I'm just so happy to get to do it. Uh, we have Michael Price. He is a writer for The Simpsons. He's the co-creator, showrunner, producer, writer for the uh, Netflix original series F is Her Family that he co-created with the phenomenal comedian Bill Burr. Uh, Mike is such a nice guy. I, I just can't get over it. like this. If you're a Simpsons fan, this this episode is for you. If you're a fan of this or family, this is for you. Um, Mike's done a ton of work about other stuff. I mean, a lot of work. You could we talk a little bit about Real Monsters and Teen Angel, but he also is um really I think he's the guy for the Lego Star Wars, which it doesn't come up in this episode at all. So I am sorry for that. We had a time frame. And I, I'm obsessed with The Simpsons, and of course, uh, I just had to hear about it. I mean, just getting to talk to someone about The Simpsons writer's room and people, celebrities they want to get in there. Um, Mike is what I would call a rock on tour. I could listen to this guy talk for hours. Uh, he is just, is just so wonderful to do this. F is for Family has become one of my favorite animated series on Netflix, like I said. Make sure you watch it. There's six episodes on there. Season two is coming out next year. And they're doing uh, 10 episodes. The voice actors alone, I mean, Justin Long, Laura Dern, uh, Sam Rockwell, Bill Burr. It's really funny. It's got a lot of humor. It's got a lot of heart. If you want to hear Mike talk more about his other work, the Lego Star Wars or all the other stuff this guy's done, because he's just he's such a fucking amazing talent, um, you could check him out on the podcast I found him from. Everyone has a podcast. They're a really wonderful podcast. I think they're based out of Canada, I want to say. Uh, so I heard Mike on that podcast, and then I f- was doing some research, and it turned out he was also on two other podcasts that I love, um, the Unwritable Rant podcast and the FYFC cast. I think it's fifth cast, FYFC, also in Canada. So that's fun. You should go check him out on those shows. Make sure you can follow him on Twitter. He's pretty active on there, at Mike Price in LA, and he, I believe, is running the um, F is for Family Writers Room Twitter, which is at F-I-F-F Netflix, which I think is really cool. There's another show I've watched that does uh, Writers Room Twitter, and it's fun. It's so in, it's so fun to interact. Like, I got to see a picture of Dave Keckner. He's going to be in season two. And for all you F is for Family fans out there, he does tease about season two. So, uh Yeah. Anyway, you can find us on uh, the Core Temp Arts Network, which is coretemparts.com. I'm on Twitter, at Let's Chat Podcast. Let me know what you think of the show. I assume I know we're going to be getting a lot of new listeners from this episode, so thank you for coming out. Please dig around, poke around, find some of the uh, backlog. Leave us an iTunes review. Everyone hates hearing it. If you could do it, it'd be great. Uh, again, just a huge thank you to Michael Price for doing this. Uh, he did not have to do this, and I will go on record. I think we recorded this. It was like 7 o'clock in the morning on his time. I'm pretty sure he did this before he went to work. Um, just I can't sing his praises. Just the, what a nice guy. You're going to love this episode. I really promise. Uh, this fulfilled the Simpsons nerddom in me. I'll hopefully get some more Simpsons folk on here. I'm going to try. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's Chat with Revel and Friends is part of Courts and Parts, a podcast network featuring pop culture, TV, and movie podcasts. Check out our other shows, That Popped This Live, Talking Shondaland, We Got Five, and TV Ate My Brain at courtsandparts.com. Time to get 
blow up like the world trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Kid Capri. Funk, Flash, the Flex, Love, Funk, Star, Ski. The first thing I noticed um, that you're you're a Jersey guy. Yes, I am. Uh, my uh, my wife is from Jersey, so my uh, laws are still. What town? Bloomfield. I went to Montclair State, and I lived in Bloomfield for a while when I went to Montclair State College. Oh yeah, I think so. Her parents did, but it was back then. It was like Mount Montclair State College. Right, that's for, was for me too. <laughs> oh yeah, Montclair is beautiful. I love that town. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I had a great time there. Yeah, they're they're in Belleville now. So every time I'm there, I'm always like, "Can we just uh, just go to Montclair, New York, or something?" Uh, <laughs> where in Jersey did you grow up? I'm from a town called South Plainfield. Is that around that area? Or? Uh, it's like Central Jersey. It's about like a 30 minute drive from Montclair. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that area because my her aunt and uncle, my wife's aunt and uncle, live in like Scotch Plains. So, and I have friends in yeah, New Brunswick. Scotch Plains is next town over from South Plainfield. It's That's why it sounds bit. familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Great bagels. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Like I live in Rhode Island now and you just you can't get a good bagel up here. So whenever we go down there, that's like our whole event. It's just getting really good bagels. <laughs> but um so according I guess you can call it research, but according to Wikipedia, um I, I definitely want to talk about S's for family, but I have to ask you about a show that it said you wrote for. Um you wrote sure. for Teen Angel? I did. I oh did. My I had a God. time writing for that show. You yeah, don't absolutely. understand the backstory. I have spent years of my life thinking that I made that show up because no one ever <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. I can never find it on YouTube. And then all of a sudden last night I found it. I was like, yes, the kid who ate a hamburger and died. Yes, yes. Uh, wow, that was a great show. You know, I got on that I show. I remember liking it. I loved it. We all loved it. It was a weird, funny, wonderful show. Uh, I got on that show thanks to being on another show that most people either have never heard of or if they have heard of it, uh, laugh at the name because it was a bit of a punchline this, at the time. Is this the Brothers in Space? Homeboys in Outer Space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of remember that. Was that UPN? That was on UPN. But yeah. uh, my first ever um, primetime show job that I worked on, I'd done some animation and some other stuff before that. But um, two guys who were on that show who were working as kind of what's called consultants, meaning that they only worked one or two days a week because they had an overall deal with Disney, which produced it, were uh, Al Jean and Mike Reese from The Simpsons. And uh, they went on to create Teen Angel, and they hired me for Teen Angel. So I have such a... Well, first of all, I have an 18-year-old son now who's almost 19, and he was born... Uh, he was born on May 17th, 1997, and uh, the very next day or two days later, I got a call from my agent saying that Al Mike wanted to hire me for Teen Angel. <laughs> so not only did I have a son, but I had a job. Oh, and that, hey, it's ma- so that's so, almost uh, uh, to the date in a few days. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, well, happy I, birthday, your son. Oh, thank you. I, I had a wonderful time on that show. It was a great staff, a really fun group, a great room. And we didn't get the proper, uh, I think, uh, whatever you want to call from people at ABC. It was during this weird time where ABC had their TGIF, uh, which was dominated by um, uh, Sabrina, the Sabrina the Teenage Witch show. Yep. So uh, they just recently lost the Urkel show, had moved over to uh, CBS. So they decided to like basically create like three Sabrinas. So they had Sabrina, and they had our show, Teen Angel, and they had a show called You Wish, which was about a genie living in a, with a family. <laughs> and so they were all on the same night. 
And we were always like finding out, like we try to do some crazy plot, like Benjamin Franklin comes back from the grave, whatever. And they're like, oh, no, the genie show is doing that. So uh, <laughs> what a weird competition. Was, I know it was such a great show. I mean, I think the show itself was fun. So many of the people I worked with on that show are still my friends and have gone on to do great things. And um, yeah, I'm so glad you 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 liked it and it did exist. <laughs> yeah, I can't find and, it on YouTube anywhere because there's another Teen Angel like movie or something that keeps popping up. Yeah. Well, I think there's some. I saw maybe they took some down, but like as long as late as like a year or so ago, I saw a couple episodes on there. But uh, anyway, it was fun. It was a great, great show. It kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh my god, because there was that and there was this other show. Maybe it was one you just said. It was like a bunch of like dinosaurs. Oh, dinosaurs. That was called not, dinosaurs. Not right, the good yeah. dinosaur show. There's another one. Oh, no, they were aliens because I love dinosaurs. I watch, I actually still watch that all the time. It was right. like a TGIF short lived, like two episode cancellation because back then, like things didn't go to DVD. So once it got canceled, it just, you never right. see it again. Well, there was a show that was on CBS because CBS tried to start their own TGIF. Oh, that's yeah, that's they, right. They raided and they brought over Family Matters, the Oracle show. They had this one that might be the one you're thinking of. It was called Migo, and it starred Bronson Pinchot as a kind of a Mark and Mindy kind of style. Yes, alien. yes, and they were like obsessed with pudding. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and I remember being I, young and thinking it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. Yeah, it was terrible. But I, but I remember, I remember that. Yeah, because I'm, I'm 31, so that's like that right age. I was a little bit too old to still be watching TGIF, but I kind of still was. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, what. Is that when I think that's when Family Matters just goes off the rails? Yeah, that, I think so. It turns into like complete <laughs> sci-fi for some reason. <laughs> right? Why not? Why not? Yeah. Oh, good. And then uh, the other show that you worked on that I'm sure you probably don't get asked about as much as Ariel Monsters. I get asked by that so much because good. when I go and speak now, well, like I occasionally go out and do little speeches, or, or I taught, I'll teach like a seminar at like USC or something in their nice. graduate school for sitcom writing and I, simpsons gets you know respect of course but when i say oh you know i worked on uh, real monsters people that go nuts because they were all kids back then you know so anyone who's in their like 20s or so right now or late 20s or maybe your age you know they all grew up with that show so <laughs> i uh, yeah that was my that was my first ever uh job in animation so uh you oh, know wow. until that time i had i had worked my only other job prior to that was my very first job ever in the business was on this uh, very low-budget, um, short-lived, syndicated sketch comedy show called The News, N-E-W-Z. And we were kind of like a low-budget uh, version of Saturday Night Live. And um, But a guy on that show, was, it was my first ever job working on, with my writing staff of the show. His, his name was David Litt. And he said, oh, you know, the show got canceled. And he's like, oh, I'm doing some work on this animated show. And he, he worked on Real Monsters. And he got me uh, a couple of freelance script assignments on that show. And then they ended up hiring me to work full time on it. But um, And then David Litt went on to have an amazing career. He, he co-created The King of Queens, the show with Kevin James. And he's worked forever. And, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's what's amazing is when you start out, you never know who these guys are who are going to go on to, like, create massive hits <laughs> but uh but real monsters was cer was certainly an amazing show and and super fun and it was my first experience writing animation and uh my first ever script i wrote for animation was the real monsters about um there was a character named crumb he was the one who held his oh, eyeball oh, up oh i know exactly who crumb okay. is okay <laughs> well it was about it was about crumb getting a pimple on his neck that turned out to be with the voice of jim belushi <laughs> singing that was a, and everything. yeah i remember that's a very good episode yeah, yeah. 
Thanks. So then, uh, yeah, so then I wrote a couple freelancers and then, um, they asked me to, someone left another guy who was working on the show. His name was Steve Scrovan. He went off to work on a, a sitcom and then he ended up becoming one of the main writers and producers of Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh God. But, uh, uh, he's a really great funny stand up too, but he left that show. So they, there was a slot available and they hired me. Okay. No, I stayed for like another year or so working on Real Monsters. Oh, that's awesome. I think Iron Monsters, unlike a lot of those Nickelodeon shows that I also watched, um, it actually holds up because like recently that all, like nostalgia hit our generation a lot earlier, but it all came to like DVD and then Netflix. It was on Netflix for about a couple of years. Uh, so uh-huh. I, it, it disappeared again, sadly, but there was like maybe like a year ago, like Rugrats and Doug, or well, Doug's on Hulu, but like a bunch of those like 90s show kind of came back and I was like, Oh, I'm going to revisit it. And not a lot of the animated stuff kind of held up because, but, um, I think the two that I remember, the three that I would say that hold up from that time frame were like Ariel Monsters, Animaniacs, and Pinky and the Brain are the three I watch as an adult still. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, again, that was, yeah, that show was great. I know I, I saw all this interest in uh, like the rebooting Rugrats or whatever they're doing and, yeah. and or Doug or um, Hey Arnold, whatever. I'm like, hey, how about Real Monsters? <laughs> oh, God, I it was really dark and there was emotion and the animation was like really beautiful and I remember, like, even as a kid, like, watching it, was one of those shows my, my dad would watch with me. That was how I would gauge a TV show as a kid, because he right. turned me on to The Simpsons. So, like, if my, if my dad liked it, then I, then, then obviously it's gonna be some, it seemed to be everything that held up. Cause, uh, there was that really, I, I mean, this is an episode I haven't seen in years, but I, oh, I'll still remember that episode they did about, like, the Super Bowl, and it's like the big, great big flush or something. Right. And, that was my pitch. I pitched that story. Oh, uh, that's one of my yeah. favorite episodes of television ever. Yeah, it's so brilliant. I had a, yeah. I remember going in there. I had done my, um, this is the very beginning of my career. So I was just married. I had just gotten married at the end of, uh, 94. And I had written a couple of those episodes already. And then I remember going in there trying to pitch a bunch of story ideas to the new showrunner of Real Monsters, a guy named Mark Steen, who's now one of my very good friends. And uh, I pitched that story just that I think just the idea of it that, yeah, on, on Super Bowl day, when everyone flushes the toilet, uh, they had a surf race or something like that. And, uh, they ended up not going with it or not hiring me to do that story. And I felt really disappointed. And my wife and I still talk about it because it was a rainy day, which is pretty rare here in LA. And I didn't have a car because we had one car we were sharing. And, uh, and the real monsters office was on, uh, if anyone knows Los Angeles, it was on Highland Avenue near Fountain. And there's a sizzler there. Uh, restaurant and I had to wait for her to come pick me up after her job and I'm sitting there in the Sizzler where it's raining and I can't even afford to like really have a steak at Sizzler <laughs> and, and she comes and gets me and and we didn't even have cell phones then because cell phones didn't really exist for forever average people back then so she came and got me and I had to tell her like no I, it was a bust you know I was a washout and I was so, so disappointed and we were kind of like, Oh, we'll be okay. You know? And then, um, and then I found out later that they hired me on. They said, Oh, you know, we really want to do that story about the Super Bowl and everything like that. So I ended up not writing it, but they ended up using my idea. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so, that's, that's a, such a weird full circle moment. I remember watching that at my grandma's house over and over and over. But oh, wow. it's just such a, it was a great cartoon. I mean, I love that idea too. Just the like, they were the monsters underground and the humans were the abnormal ones. But like, right, right. But it's low, it, cause I love like the Simpsons, like the work you do with that. And like even as his family where you have like 
highbrow humor with like lowbrow humor, like because flushing the toilet is hilarious, but it's <laughs> but then they make this big ritualistic uh, thing about it. Yeah, well, I love toilet jokes. Oh, they never <laughs> never stop being funny. Like I, I don't know what it is. Like I can watch like high intellect humor, and then I'll still. But that's what the, you know the Simpsons was known for yeah. with the the yeah. low hanging fruit and the high like fruit. No, we have a, uh, there's a writer on the Simpsons. Uh, I won't say his name because he's a great friend of mine, but like, yeah, he'll make any, a Simpsons room, in any, any comedy room you ever find, like, you'll find stuff, people talking, making jokes about it. everything and anything, you know, stuff that would never, if it was ever said in, like out in the world, you would be appalled. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, this guy, this guy, he cannot take shit jokes or toilet jokes. So like, he will literally get up and leave the room <laughs> if we start oh. doing that. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, no, 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 I can't do this. You know, but he'll come back five minutes later and do, you know, something about a thousand times worse about some kind of sex joke or something like that. But if it comes to like any kind of toilet humor or whatever, he's like, he gets squeamish and leaves the room. That's kind of, I wouldn't expect that for a Simpsons writer. <laughs> I know. <laughs> of all, of all shows. I mean, not that it's well, actually now Simpsons isn't considered as crude as when it first aired because of things like South Park and Family Guy. Right. No, no, we're the, we're the, we're the safe family show now. Ah, God, isn't that strange? Uh, yeah. were you, did you get into, like, growing up, were you, a, well, not growing up, but, like, so, were you into The Simpsons when it first started, when it came out on the the brand new, uh, Fox Network? Yes, I was. Uh, I remember, I remember being at my parents' house, uh, in New Jersey during that summer, first when, the, when Fox first started. And, uh, I have a very, very vivid memory of this because I wasn't living at home anymore, but I was sort of hanging out with my parents for, like, Father's Day weekend or something like that. And, um, and turning on the TV and seeing the Tracy Ullman show for the first time and then seeing the Simpsons on there and, you know, thinking they were pretty funny. And I, I recognized Matt Groening. I knew who he was from his, uh, his books, his life in hell books. Uh, and I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And then, um, you know, and then I was sort of doing my life and everything's like that. I wasn't really, in, I wasn't involved in trying to do show business or anything at that, at that time. And, uh, then cut to like whatever that is, like two years, two years later or three years later, it's April of 1990, and um, I was living living in New York by then, and I was interested in doing comedy, and I was doing uh, sketch comedy, like improv sketch comedy with this group in New York. And a bunch of us all went to, uh, they had an Earth Day concert in Central Park with like one of those giant concerts in Central Park with mm -hmm. like 100,000 people there. And we all hung out together to see Earth Day concert and the B-52s were the headliners. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great show. And then we all went back to this guy's place because he lived near the park. And it was that Sunday. It was Earth Day. And he was like, oh, my God, we got to watch The Simpsons. And uh, that was the first time I ever saw the actual Simpsons uh, series. And I believe it was the one, I think it's called Bart's Dog Gets an F. It's the one where... Um, the dog is going to be taken away if it doesn't learn to go to obedience school. And, and there's all those shots where you see Bart talking to the dog and from the dog's point of view, it's just blah, 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 blah. And, uh, I remember we all watched it together and we were like, Oh my God, this is the greatest show ever. This is unbelievable. This is so great. And, uh, yeah, I became a fan then. And, um, everybody, everybody knew then was trying to write spec scripts of it because that's what you do when you try to get and break into TV writing, especially back then. You write a spec script, which means that you take a show that's already on the air 
and you do like your own version of it as a sample script. So I knew a bunch of people who were writing Spec Simpsons at the time, and uh, you know I thought about it, but I didn't really know the show very well. And uh, I had a writing partner at the time, and she was more interested in more a little more mainstream fare. So we ended up writing our first respect script was for the Golden Girls. Oh, with uh, <laughs> Mitchell Horowitz from Rest of Development. Right, yeah, a lot of great people came out of that show. Yeah, but anyway, that was that was my show. experience watching The Simpsons, and then you know as it as it went on and on, uh, you know I wouldn't say I was a I wasn't like an obsessed fan, but I watched it certainly whenever it was on, and thought it was great, and realized how great it was, and. And certainly had no idea, you know, whatever that was, 12 or 13 years later, that you know, I'd be working for it. But um, <laughs> And it would still be on. Yeah, right. It would be on 13 <laughs> years after that. Oh, my God. It, it's it, it's amazing to think. When you ended up getting hired to Simpsons, was it probably a good thing that you weren't, like, an obsessive super fan like myself? Because you could probably keep your shit together when you got to meet those people <laughs> and not. Well, no, I mean, I was still. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> right. I mean, uh well. Yeah, by the time I got hired, you know, I, I, I was still a fan. I was not an obsessed super fan. So there were many episodes I hadn't seen. Um, but I was certainly aware of like how huge it was and how important it was and how great the writing staff was. So when I got in there and again, that's sort of, I got on the Simpsons due to meeting Al Jean and Mike Reese on Homeboys in Outer Space. So that's how I got to know those guys. And, um, you know, they, they had run the show for a while and then they went off to do other things, including Teen Angel and stuff like that. And then uh, they eventually worked their way back to The Simpsons, and I worked with Alan Mike uh, in another capacity when they were also consulting on a show I worked on called The PJs with oh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, and, the animated, uh, the claymation show. Right, that was claymation a really good show. show. That was a great show too. That was another yeah, great show. I wish that would pop show. up on streaming because I'd love to rewatch that. Yeah, I think there's all kinds of rights issues about that because um, it was made by like five different companies. It was yeah. made by Disney and by Imagine. And it was for Fox Television, and uh, you know. Anyway, uh, we'll they, never see they, it. They only recently put a DVD out. There's DVDs of it out, but oh, kind, of perfun- kind of perfunctory DVDs. Like anyway, um, uh, and then I worked on another show uh, in Chicago. The show called What About Jones, starring Joan Cusack, and that show was just about to get canceled. It was like we were struggling in the ratings, and it was a difficult time because uh, we had a film it in Chicago, and my son was really young, and my wife. We're back here in L.A. and I was in Chicago and it was really tough. But um, so I got a call out of the blue from Al Jean and he was like, hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm like, oh, good. How are you? And he's like, well, you know, I'm back here at the Simpsons and uh, I'm running things at the Simpsons. And, um, you know, I don't know if you're available, but we might have a slot available for you this upcoming next season. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I think the show I'm on, the show I'm on is, is maybe about to get canceled. And he goes, well, if it does, give me a call. So then. Um, then I started actively rooting for that. Yeah. <laughs> because it was pretty much the writing was on the wall that it was going to go. But um, so then it did get canceled. I called him up and he's like, okay. And then, uh, you know, it took about a month or two to get everything put together. But then that's when I started working on The Simpsons. And um, my very first day was December, something like December 21st, 2001. Uh, I started the same day as uh, another guy who's still there, Stuart Burns. And uh, that was our first day. We both started on the same day. And then uh, it was sort of like, okay, we had to work one day. It was a Friday. And then it was like, okay, well, now we're all off for Christmas vacation. <laughs> so then I got a two-week Christmas vacation out of it. But, um, but then starting for the, in the room proper, like coming back after the new year in 2002, I was in this room with these legendary people like uh, George Meyer and, and, of course, Al and Mike Reese and uh, you know the writing staff who was already there, Mike Scully and, 
David Merkin and just all these people who I, I knew about, you know, I had never met and, uh, it was quite intimidating. And also with the, so many characters, so, so many people, so many characters on the show and so much history of the show, it took me quite a while to sort of learn, learn everything and really get up to speed. And, and that was DVDs really hadn't started coming out of the Simpsons at all yet. So like it was hard for me to, I would, I would watch it every night, you know, when I was working on it, like go and watch it on the syndicated version of it. And there were some VHS, uh, episodes out, but it was really learning who everybody is like and learning the shorthand in the room of like how they talk about characters. So I remember like my first day there, they were working on, um, the show that became, uh, became the 300th episode, which is where Bart sues Homer for emancipation. Oh, yeah, it's a really good one. Uh, right. It's called Barting Over. <laughs> yeah. So they were talking about uh, who would represent Bart in this trial when he's suing Homer for emancipation. And so uh, the guy who was running the room at the time was Ian Maxstone Graham, who uh, since became a great friend of mine. And he's like, well, what if, what if, um, who should Bart's lawyer be? So someone said like, what if it's old Gil, right? And I had no idea who Gil was. <laughs> I did not know who he was. I mean, if you said like, oh, he's the guy that talks like Jack Lemon. Oh, okay. He's that, yeah. guy. you know, I didn't know people's names. I didn't really know who Lenny and Carl were. I just knew like Homer's friends, you know, like I knew one of them was black. One of them like talk like Joe Rockhead from the Flintstones. <laughs> and, uh, and so then, uh, they go, oh, I don't think Gil would be the guy one. How about, and then, and then Ian said, how about Burns's lawyer? And I was like, um, well, Burns's lawyer, if you don't know, is the way they referred to that guy with the blue hair who talks like Roy Cohn. Yes, okay. Like, That's like, what I was Burns. thinking. I don't know right. his name. Yeah, so he's, well, if you buy like a figure of him or something, they call him blue-haired lawyer. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the writers all call him Burns's lawyer because he was Mr. Burns's lawyer in, in a couple of episodes. So, uh, so Ian goes, what if it was Burns's lawyer? <clears throat> and I go, I go, excuse me, but you know, why would Mr. Burns's lawyer want to represent Bart? And he's like, no, we just, we just call him Burns's lawyer. So, <laughs> so then I shut up pretty much for the rest of the day uh. and like didn't really, um, contribute much. But you know, it's funny because we we're just talking about Bronson Pincho, you know, uh, that show Migo. Uh, the very first joke I pitched that got at least in the script, I don't know if it made it into the air was they were talking about, if you remember that episode, Bart had made all this money as a baby because he was in a commercial for yep. this stuff, this thing, baby stink breath or whatever it was. <laughs> and um, so the commercial, Lisa found the tape of the commercial that Bart was in. And it was, and the pitch was that it was during an episode of um, uh, Perfect Strangers. Uh, oh, yeah. So... So, uh, so they said like, oh, we need like a little bit of like a little bit of perfect strangers before we go to the commercial. So they're pitching on it. And I said, well, of course you have to have, what's his name? Balky say, don't be ridiculous. And they're like, what? I go, that, that was his catchphrase. Don't be ridiculous. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, that's what it was. And then that, that was the first thing I ever got in the Simpsons script was that guy saying, don't be ridiculous. Uh, anyway, did you, I did you save that script? <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I said, how, how could you? I mean, God, just the idea of just going to a Simpsons table reader and writer's room is like, Simpsons yeah. nerd heavens. Yeah. And so like all little firsts like that are things that are really dear to my heart. So the first thing I ever got that actually made it to the air was the way the work, the way the show works is that we're working on different things at all different times. So that, that early in that early in 2002, you know, we were writing the scripts that were going to be on like a year later, but at the same time we were rewriting, um, shows that were coming in that were almost about to be go on TV. So, so like when a show comes in and it's mostly animated, the writing staff has a shot to do like a couple of little rewrites here and there. So that's done about like a month or so before it gets on the air. 
So there's an episode called The Lastest Gun in the West that's written by John Swartzwelder, who, of course, is like everybody's hero, you know, on The Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the one about Krusty and Bart uh, befriending this old cowboy named Buck McCoy, who was played by um, played by uh, McLeod, Dennis uh, Weaver. And um, anyway, so we're sitting there in Al Jean's office, me and Al Jean and a guy named Tim Long, and we're just working on, like, these extra jokes for this thing. And so they needed a little thing at the beginning of the Krusty show that's similar to kind of like what you have on, um, like when you watch like, uh, David Letterman or something mm-hmm. where they go like live from New York, you know, cesspool of whatever, that kind of thing. So we needed one of those. So I pitched this thing that, that got on the air. And it's my first joke ever that got on the air on The Simpsons is, um, the announcer played by Harry Shearer. He goes live from the intersection of Zany Boulevard and Martin Luther King Boulevard. <laughs> Something like that. Zany Street. It was Zany Street. Zany Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Uh, so that was my first ever Simpsons joke that made it to the TV. So, uh, and I have a shell from that episode because they start, this is all, I'm, I'm rambling like crazy. But oh, this, around this that time. Amazing. Uh, okay. Around that time of like season 13 or so, uh, was the last season that was actually done on animation cells. Um, oh, wow. and after that, after that, they switched over to a more of a, um, drawing on computers. And, um, so, so I have a cell, I have a cell from that episode. It's a, it's a picture of Homer and Marge, uh, pouring all of Buck Weaver's booze down the drain. <laughs> so, that, so that's the only show from episode, the season, I mean, that's a show from season 13 that, uh, has, um, has a cell. And then by the time they got to, uh, my first episode was, Right, that's right. I'm sorry. What it was, it was like season 14 had, season 14 had, um, had cells as well, but I, I didn't start, my name didn't show, show up as a, uh, as a right, as a written by until season 15, because the first show I wrote uh, has my name on it as written by, it was called My Mother the Carjacker, and it's about Homer's mother returning and being on the run from the law and all that stuff. And the way it was written, the way our, our production schedule works, is it was written during what's called season 14 production season, but uh, it aired in season 15 on the air. So by the time they got to season 15 on the air, uh, they didn't use cells anymore. Oh, that's uh, too bad. So, so I have some original artwork. I mean, they, they occasionally, they don't do this so much anymore. Usually around once a year, around Christmas time, they used to have uh, open up a big room, like a big conference room at Fox, where anybody who worked at Fox could go in there and they'd have these boxes and boxes of, uh, animation cells from, from all the animated shows, from Simpsons, from Family Guy, from, uh, Futurama, from, you know, uh, American Dad or Cleveland or whatever like that. And then you could buy them, like the employees could buy them at a discount as opposed to what they, what you'd pay for them if they were sold them at like this company store or something like that. So, so we would just stock up on cells and stuff like that, but there's very little cells left. And so there's some, I would buy, I bought some original art. So there's like a art, original sketch art from one of my episodes, which was called Tis the 15th Season, which is about, um, at Christmas time where Homer becomes like the Grinch and all that stuff. And, um, so it's a really nice drawing I have on my wall of, um, it's of everybody singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's like Cookie Kwan, Frederick <laughs> Tatum, and, uh, oh God. Frank or somebody I've got in, in pencil. So. So anyway. when you're, um, when you're writing The Simpsons, do you ever try to like, be like, oh, I want to meet this celebrity. Let's write this character and see if we can get him. Cause I've, I've listened to a lot of Simpsons writers on podcasts and that's not un- uncommon. And why would you no, not? It's not? It's not. The only time I'd say that that actually happened and it actually worked out, uh, for me personally. Well, there are two times. 
Um, the first one was I was writing an episode that became, it's called Yokel Chords. And it's about, uh, Lisa becoming like a sound of music style teacher to Cletus's, uh, kids. And, uh, so I was working on an episode at the time and I happened to go to a dinner party where my wife, uh, my wife has a really good friend whose uh, husband is one of the producers. His name is Rick Berman. He's the guy who produced all the later, um, like Star Trek, the next generation, uh, shows and movies. Oh, my and wife is going to lose her shit when she hears that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're wonderful people, Rick and Liz Berman. They're, they're both wonderful people. So it was Liz's birthday party. This is like going back about 10 years or so and a birthday dinner. And so I was starstruck because like all the Star Trek, the next generation people were there. I got to meet like, uh, um, uh, like Jonathan Frakis was there and Marina Sirtis and, uh, Brent Spiner. They were all there. I was like, Oh my God. Oh, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I was like, Oh my God. This is, this is the greatest night ever. But then also at the same time, there was a great guy there, uh, and a guy there who I met. His name was John Logan and he wrote one of the Star Trek movies. He wrote one of the later Picard Star Trek movies and he was there and he said, oh, I'm happy to be working with right now. I'm writing the screenplay for Sweeney Todd with Stephen Sondheim. And I was like, oh, my God, Stephen Sondheim. Like, Stephen Sondheim is my ultimate, like, I'm a theater person originally. So, uh, Stephen Sondheim is, like, one of the great heroes of my life. Mm-hmm. So, I was like, oh, my God. And he was, but then at the same time, this guy, John Logan, was excited that I worked on The Simpsons. And I was like, oh, my God. I said, do you think Stephen Sondheim would ever want to be on The Simpsons? And he's like, I bet he would. You know, he's kind of like a frustrated old actor. I'm like, oh, my God. So, I, I said, I'm happy to be writing an episode right now on a joke business relation. I bet there's probably a way we could work Stephen Sondheim into this episode. He's like, well, he goes, well, here's his address. So he gave me Stephen Sondheim's actual New York City ad- mailing address. He goes, write him a letter and ask him to be on the show and he'll, he'll probably write you back and whatever. I'll put in a good word for you when I see him. So I did that. I wrote him a letter saying, we'd love to have you on The Simpsons in this episode about Krusty, you know, working with music and we'd have a part where you work with Krusty on writing a song or something like that. And he, he wrote back like two weeks later saying, yes, sir. But, so that was it. So I was like, oh my God, we're just doing it. He's doing it. So we wrote this scene where it's in the show now where, where Krusty hires him to write music for these idiot kids. And, um, so, uh, and it's all where he thinks that Krusty thinks that, um, Stephen Sondheim wrote cats and things like that when he didn't. And, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so then we got to do it, and then I got to go to New York City and be there in the recording studio and direct Stephen Sondheim when he recorded the show, and it was like the, one of the great moments of my life, and I'll never forget it, and uh, it was spectacular. Um, so that's one of those, and the other one was my son um, and I, you know, you talk about how, like, your dad watched, you know, cartoons with you, so I would watch stuff with my son, and he really got into this show called The Mythbusters on Discovery Channel, so we, we loved that show. So, uh, I was always pitching to Algene, we should put the Mythbusters on a show. And there's another writer on The Simpsons named Rob Lezebnik, who also loves the, loves Mythbusters. And so, uh, we, he, Rob wrote a script that, that we ended up putting them in. Uh, and we called them Mythcrackers in the show for some reason. But, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we got to do the, sh- they got to do the show. They came down and we met them, Adam, uh, Savage and Jamie Heineman. And they were just wonderful, wonderful guys. They're and, funny uh, too. Like they're really so, funny. They're so funny, and uh, you know, they're pretty much the way they appear on the show. Where uh, Jamie is a little more kind of um, crass, reserved. Oh, not crass. Jamie, the other guy. One of them. I've listened. Adam, Adam yeah, the, the one who's the most outgoing. And, oh my god, and, 
have you ever heard of a yeah. Nerdist podcast? He's so dirty. Oh, I haven't heard him that man. He's so the nicest guy. He's such the most he's such the most wonderful guy in the world. Jamie is a little more kind of like keeps to himself in a little way. Like, like I mean, compared to Adam, anybody would appear shy. Yeah. But Adam is so nice and so sweet. So he invited us to come up and and if we're ever in San Francisco, come see him. And so uh, my son and I went up to San Francisco. We went to see a baseball game up there, and and we went and had lunch with them, and out at their place and saw their blueprint room and all that stuff. Oh and man. He's remained like a great friend to us, and and he comes down. You know, the Simpsons, uh, whenever the Simpsons gets nominated for an Emmy, it's held at what's called, some people call the Schmemmies, which means it's the, it's the Emmys that you don't see on TV. It's called the Creative Arts Emmys. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, the animation category is that night, but also, uh, shows like Mythbusters, which is like nominated under like informational reality programming or something like that. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, and they always get nominated and they haven't won. And I don't know if they'll ever win because this is their, their, their last year. Maybe they'll win this year. But they always come down and, um, we always see them and, uh, Adam and we hang out and whatever. He's a great guy. So do you get dad points for that? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so those are the two stories of like celebrities that we're both like, oh, we're, we're going to put them on the show. Not what I expected, but that's actually somehow cooler. It makes it, I, I was expecting the bigger people, but. That's what's so fun about this world of just like getting to become fans of people. Like, I mean, those guys are famous, but they're not like Keith Richards right. or whatever. Well, right. Well, it's weird too. I mean, there's a guy, there's a guy, he's no longer with us. He, he, he sadly passed away, but he was really, really big here in California. His name was Huel Hauser. And, uh, he hosted these shows on, on PBS channels in California where he would go around and visit like, uh, like old state parks or he'd go to like this little town or he'd meet someone who had like a collection of 10,000 bunny statues, whatever, and sort of interview them. And if kind of a, he was originally from the South. So he kind of talked with a golly gee whiz kind of thing. Like, how about that? You know, he was really famous in California. And so we parodied him on the Simpsons. Um, <clears throat> I believe it was the episode where it ended up being about gay marriage. Um, but the beginning of it was this guy who we called Hal Huser and, um, he was there and he was a kind of a, like a, a hick type guy who Bart and Milhouse did all kind of crazy things. They abused him because he was gullible and he ended up going on TV and talking about how bad Springfield was. And so we did our parody of him and then the actual Huel Hauser lived next door to one of our writers and, or no, I'm sorry, he didn't live next door, but a guy who worked for him lived next door and he goes like, Hal Huel Hauser would definitely be on the show. And so he called up Al Jean and said, like, next time you're going to make fun of me, let me do it myself. So then he came down and did a ep later episode. And he was so sweet and so nice. And that was, like, the biggest thing ever. Like, it was bigger than Mick Jagger coming when Huel Hauser. <laughs> That's so, so funny. We all, we all gathered around him. He was so nice and so sweet. And, um, and yeah, that was the biggest, like, that was, like, the biggest thing going when, when Huel Hauser came to the show. Uh, do you, do you, have you done any of the Simpsons podcasts yet? And I've heard your name a fair uh, amount. No, I haven't, I have not yet. I have not yet, but I, I would certainly would. Come on, everything's coming up podcast. I, I've heard them refer to you a few times. Uh, I think so, yeah. I've met, is that the one with the, um, Ali Gortz and Julia yeah, Prescott? I've, I've met them, but I haven't had a chance to be on their show yet. Yeah, that, there's like, I think there's three that I know of, cause, but there's probably more than that, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I obviously we should got to pivot to, uh, F is for family. Yeah. Cause... So looking at my clock. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> how did, well, so my impression, that show is brilliant and I think it only work on Netflix or like an HBO Showtime kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, 
it kind of I don't know if this was you and Bill's intention, but for when I after I, I watched it twice, it had this uh, the whole time of it. I was like, this is amazing, and it reminds me of like King of the Hill and Roy Crozan, two things I love more than anything in this world. Sure. Well, I think that you know it started with Bill Burr, of course, uh, you know, doing a lot of this material about his family and his stand-up act over the years, and uh, he always wanted to find some way to do it, and he thought about doing it with small animations, sort of like the little things they did on the Tracy Ullman show. And, uh, but he ended up having a meeting with what's called Wild West Television, which is Vince Vaughn's production company, uh, with Peter Billingsley, who, who was, uh, runs Vince Vaughn's production company and talking about some things. And then at the end of the meeting, according to Bill, he says, I, I don't really have anything I want to do. Well, you know, I'd love to do like a little bit of animation about my family. And they're like, Oh my God, that's it. You know, we want to do animation. We're trying to do an animated series. So. They started talking about it, and then uh, because Bill, you know, only had experience doing uh, stand-up, they wanted to team him with someone who knew, you know, what it, what it's like to produce an animated series and, you know, kind of a veteran uh, writer. So then uh, I ended up getting a call from my agent saying, "What I want to meet about it," and and knowing the the, the just the, the broad parameters of it, that it was Bill Burr, and he wanted to do a show about kind of kids in the '70s and what it was like growing up back then. And that was a huge interest of mine. I had tried to write a pilot my own self set in that time, sort of based on my family, and um, it didn't go. So it was definitely a huge interest to me. So I had a meeting with those guys where we just sort of told stories about what it was like growing up. And uh, I told stories about, like, running around all day and, you know, kind of stuff that wound up in the show and, like, playing in houses under construction and, and the way my dad was a little bit different than Bill's dad and sort of dealing with anger and things like that. And we really hit it off. And then it took a, took a quite a lot of time because Bill was on the road and, you know, so we'd meet every once in a while and we'd talk through the story ideas and the pit. And we ended up pitching it originally to, uh, Cartoon Network. And, uh, they liked it initially. They liked to pitch enough to, to commission, uh, us to write a pilot script. So I wrote the pilot script, which turned into that first episode about the TV and the magnet, which is actually based on a real thing that my brother did, my older brother. Oh, no yeah, yeah. He came home from school one day with a magnet, like a giant bar magnet. And, uh, I always thought he did it by accident, but then later on I talked to him. He's like, no, no, I did it on purpose. I wanted to see, like, what would the magnet do to the TV? <laughs> so he must he, have loved uh, you for up, that. He, on ended TV. Screwing, he ended up screwing up the TV and everything. So anyway, that pilot became the pilot script, which then Cartoon Network then, uh, you know, respectfully said, you know, we're not going to go forward with this. So, uh, I thought that was it. It's over. But then Vince Vaughn, you know, who is our, our ultimate, you know, producer was very passionate about it. He goes, no, this is not over. This is not over. I remember Vince Vaughn because Vince Vaughn is the most Vince Vaughn guy you'll ever meet. <laughs> and he's like, he's, he's a giant, like, right? He's a very tall man. Uh, so am I, but he, but he's got huge force of personality. Like he's just like basically the way you see him in movies where, where he's very passionate. He's very excited. Uh, he talks very fast, you know, not super fast, but like he's very much like if he says something, you listen to him, you know? So he said, he said, this is not dead. This is not dead. You know, I believe in this show. I know we're going to take this and I know exactly where this is going to go. So then I was like, okay. So then like a week later, we heard that he wanted to bring it to Netflix and he knew the people at Netflix a little bit. Uh, Peter Billingsley had a personal relationship dating back many years to a guy named Ted Sarandos, who's the head of Netflix now. Um, but they also knew Bill really well because Bill had done several uh, stand-up specials for Netflix. So it seemed like a perfect fit. So we went in there and we pitched it to them and we left them the script behind and then we heard later that they wanted to do it. So, uh, it was rescued from the ashes <laughs> by Vince Vaughn. And, um, so we got to do six episodes and then that, that 
pilot became the first episode of six. It was the intention always to have an overarching story instead of no, because I think that's no, the thing I love about it the most. Absolutely, I agree with you a thousand percent. Well, when we first wrote this idea, we first came up with this idea, we first started talking about it. It was four years ago. It was two thousand and twelve. So at that time, Netflix as a place for original content fairly much didn't exist. I think House of Cards or Orange is the New Black might have been on or might not have been on. I can't remember. They had but, put out a bunch of stuff that, like, I think Lily Hammer was their first, and I don't but, think anyone watched yeah. it. <laughs> right, right. So it wasn't anywhere. anywhere it wasn't near. popular. It wasn't, like, the place to go yet. Right. It wasn't anywhere near where it is now. So we envisioned it at first sort of in the Simpsons mode of kind of standalone episodes where here's the episode where they go to buy a Christmas tree and here's the episode where this happens, you know, but not, not that it would necessarily have serialized arcs. So when we, when we got on Netflix, then they were the ones who said like, you know, this is our kind of brand of storytelling that we really like. It's worked really well for, you know, for our other shows, uh, such as they have by then, by then they had house of cards, by then they had oranges and new black. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think Bojack had not yet come on, but it was in the works. And, um, so they said, we really like you to explore and, and, and see if this can work for you guys to do this kind of serialized set. It's more like so much that serialized is like their, their binge watching model, mm-hmm. you know, really works for someone who watch episode one and it ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger. It's like, Oh, I got to see what happens next. Well, that automatic really get... play thing destroys right, right, your life. Cause like, I'm not getting up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But they want you to, they want you to stick around and watch as many in a row as you can. So, um, so right. So if you, if you go back and look at the show, like that first episode is pretty much a standalone episode about the TV. And then what we did was we ended up, uh, adding the thing at the very end where Frank gets a phone call from work saying that his boss has been killed and now he has the new job. So that was like the first little kind of, uh, you know, binge bait, whatever, like, okay, let's see what happens next. So then, so then the subsequent five episodes, that's, that's when we really like went and grabbed it and took, took on like the, this, the arcs of, um, you know, Frank and his problem with work with the union and all that. And then, and then with, uh, Sue and her dissatisfaction with her marriage. And then, um, those are the two main arcs. And then, you know, the boys, the, the kid, the kids had their somewhat serialized arcs, which is more about character development, which was about Kevin, the character that Justin Long plays, sort of learning that he's not just a stoner, but that he has feelings and that, you know, he feels bad about himself and he wants to do better. And then also with Bill, the character played by Haley Reinhardt, that, that he, he's a good boy who like, uh, really idolizes his dad, but then sort of slowly comes to learn more things about the world than you thought he would learn. And so it was really, really fun to, and exciting. And I agree with you 100%. Like the show, I can't imagine a version of the show where it's just like, um, that kind of Simpsons or Family Guy storytelling where it's just one episode, any episode is interchangeable with any other. I can't, I can't see it working at all that way. So I'm so glad that we ended up at Netflix and we're so glad that they asked us to do do the stories this way because now we're now we're in the middle of writing season two yeah oh so excited. Yeah, 10 uh, episodes too 10 episodes 10 episodes great yeah. that's so a good number doing, for a season i think yeah absolutely it's 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 pretty good so um we always want more you always want more but 10 is 10 is good but um so now we're we're picking up i'm not going to spoil anything but we're picking up you know a couple of weeks after season one ended and it's, it's dealing with the aftermath of what happened at the end of season one if anyone hasn't I won't spoil it if anyone hasn't seen the show oh, yet. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we pick up a couple of weeks later and, and the family is in a certain place at the end of episode, season one, uh, mostly dealing with Frank and his job. 
and uh, we pick up from there, and then we go forward, and and the characters have changed now, and and like they get older, and so it's nineteen seventy four now, not nineteen seventy three, and um, yeah, we're so we're just in the middle of plotting it out. We, we just had our um, we have our table read for episode three is uh, tomorrow, and um, we've done the first two already, but we're we're moving along, and we have a we have a little slightly bigger writing staff this year, and um, and we know where we're heading for ten episodes, and it's it's so exciting, and and we're thrilled. Now, I, when I I watch it, um, I'm wondering if how much of your Simpsons life comes from it, because there's parts of it that remind me of like that like James L. Brooks heart where you guys have these really beautiful, sweet moments mm-hmm. quickly yeah. followed by Frank's balls or something <laughs> uh, happening, which I think makes the show brilliant. Or like when he's in the car and he's like singing the Christmas song right. and then someone fucks on his car. So it's right. like, and it's, that's my humor. I'm like, yes, I want to be able to cry and laugh on, on the dime. And that's yeah. what I love about it. I would say, yeah, I mean, well, well, Jim Brooks, you know, of course, the godfather of that. I mean, him and Sam Simon are like the idols of, of that era. Yeah, well, Jim is a Jim is one of the great geniuses of of all time of writing. You know, not only Simpsons, but you know, he everything created ever. Show, Taxi. Yeah. He direct wrote in terms of endearment, broadcast news, as good as it gets. I mean, it just goes on and on. So, yeah, I mean that that's sort of like if you go back to the Simpsons a little bit, like I think that's part of what made the Simpsons so special, and still I think still makes it special, is that it's a combination of like this weird cartoon style of Matt Groening. Uh, you know, really smart, super funny, uh, humor f- from Sam Simon and also an all, all, all packaged up together with, with what Jim Brooks brings, which is like a real understanding of like real human emotions. So, um, yeah, I mean, to be compared to anything that Jim Brooks has done would, is a huge compliment, but, but yeah, I think we always wanted to be real, you know, like I think that we, we knew we were doing animation so you can get away with certain things, but we didn't want to be, you know, for lack of a better word, like cartoony in that we wanted, we always knew that we wanted the show to be where people, more or less real characters experience real emotions. And because we have the freedom now on Netflix of, of content, they can talk the way people really talk. You know, I mean, my family, we didn't run around slinging F-bombs, but, um, but that was Bill's experience and his family largely. And, and, um, well, it's Boston. Yeah. in Boston, whatever. And, um, but like the way that people really behave, the way that people really talk, I mean, and based on real things. So like that thing where Bill goes to the football game and sees all the men in the bathroom, that's based on me going to a Jets game with my dad at, at Shea Stadium in 19, whatever it was, 1970. You know, so it, it was fun for us to sort of be able to dramatize and, and show these things that really, the way people really behave, the way they really act and that, and that they have consequences and it's not just a big crazy cartoon and that, you know, as, as great as the Simpsons are, we wanted to, like, why make another Simpsons? Why, why, you know, and I know you mentioned King of the Hill. Uh, you know, King of the Hill certainly, certainly was a touchstone for us in terms of, like, realistic depiction of the way it's drawn. You know, the way, the way the people look, like, look more like real people, not like so much like cartoons. Um, but why make, you know, we're different from King of the Hill, I'd say, in content. You know, Frank, Frank Murphy is not Hank Hill, but, um. No, no, but, no, not at all. Why, yeah, but why, why, yeah, so why, why do another Family Guy? Why do another Simpsons? Why not make something that's different? And we thought that this was a space that really hadn't been, hadn't been explored, you know, using animation to, to really talk about real life and, and. Real and problems. Real problems. That yeah, like, so. many people go through. But at the same time, like you're saying, those moments of heart is absolutely very, very much in our minds at all times, you know, so, uh, and you know, and Frank Murphy is, is a, 
is kind of a controversial character in a way, you know, because I've read a lot of the comments about it saying he's horrible and he's racist and he's <laughs> whatever. He's a drunk and he drives drunk with his son, uh, you know, and he yells a lot and screams. But but we we really hope that we felt like we we portrayed him in a way that you understand why he's that way. He's not just like the world's horrible, most horrible man. You know, he he's a guy who had a lot of dreams and that didn't quite work out. And and like a lot of people back then, a lot of people now. You know, I've seen some quotes uh, on Twitter from people saying, like, I tried to watch that show, but it, it just reminded me too much of my own life. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, uh, but, you know, he's a guy that, and that's sort of what I think is one of the great things that we end up coming up with that opening titles were, uh, with, with myself and all our producers and our animation people. And, uh, this guy named Dan Sumich, who's our supervising animation director, you know, came up with the visual idea for that opening titles. But like, you got to see this whole guy's life in front of him. Like, he started out really, optimistic and and uh looking forward to the future and then life hit him one thing after another and now he's sort of stuck in middle age and he's not very happy and but he still loves his family and he's a real person you know so uh it's been so much fun just to work with these work with these characters and at the same time you know we have our core family where yeah they do outrageous things or crazy things happen to them but they're pretty much grounded in reality and then what's great about it is we have this larger cast of other characters where if we really need to go for a big hard joke then we have the two kids, you know, the kid in the diaper, Ben and Ken, you know, or we have we have the crazy neighbors, you know, uh, we have Vic played by Sam Rockwell, you know, who also has a little bit of depth, but uh, it's mostly there because he's really super funny. So we have like a, a lot of tools in our arsenal because we can go from that, like you're saying, like the the the, you know, the the dwarf on fucking on the hood, you know, it's like we go from real heartfelt stuff to real crazy stuff and we're able to sort of we're finding that tone and, and as we go into second season we're finding more and more ways to have fun with that and at, while at the same time keep everybody real and finding what the real what's real underneath like the easy joke um for lack of a better word like one thing i can tease a little tiny bit is um and there's an episode in season episode three where um, it's the same one where they go to the football game, but then uh, Sue goes to the mall and she runs to her friend Ginny, who's getting a divorce or is separated from her husband. And it's clear from the way the woman talks about her husband that he's clearly like, you know, a closeted, a closeted gay man, you know, who never should have gotten married to a woman. Uh, and his name is Greg. So in in season two, we'll see a little bit of Greg. We'll meet Greg. And, and you'll like, we, you know, it's very easy to do the kind of joke about like a guy who's, a guy who's gay trying to be straight, whatever like that. And we get a couple of those, but as we move forward into the season and we see a little bit more of him, like you sort of understand, like he's a real person. And there are a lot of people like that who, you know, who, who either are in denial about their sexuality or, or, or try to deny it or whatever. And, and it's hard and it's difficult. So we get, we get, we hope to get like a little bit of the humor of it, but also at the same time, like see that this is a, this is a real person going through, you know, a, a real painful time. So that's that's our little. Oh. I tell you that. So we'll see a little bit of him. I'm really excited for that. Um, just real quick, where could uh, people find you online? Because I know we gotta wrap it up. Oh yeah. Uh, well, on Twitter, I have a Twitter account. It's called Mike Price in L.A., which is like the lamest, <laughs> the lamest Twitter name ever. I I joined I, I joined Twitter one night one day one night like in 2009. I was like, ah, oh, okay, this is a pretty good whatever. This will be my name. People named Mike. There's like a lot of Mike Prices in the world. Yeah. So I think Mike Price in L.A. But it sounds so lame now. I wish I wasn't stuck with it, but I am. But that's me. It's all one word, Mike Price in LA. And then we also have a Twitter account for the, for, for, um, our Ephesian Family Writers Room Twitter account, which is, it's, um, it's like F-I-F-F -F Netflix, but it's called like 
fifth writers or something like that. So we, we post a lot of stuff from, uh, like we just had a recording session yesterday with, uh, Dave Keckner as Bob Pogo. So, uh, I put up a picture of, of Dave with, in the bill with, I'm sorry, in the booth with Bill Burr, uh, from yesterday. So, um, we put a lot of stuff, news and things on, on that account, but I'll also retweet it on mine. Oh, perfect. Uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, thank you so much and have a good uh, rest of your day. Sure. Thank you. Okay. Great talking to you. Did you know that listening to Let's Chat with Revelin Friends can improve your memory, problem-solving skills, and ward off Alzheimer's? Hello, everyone. This is Dwight Hurst from the Broken Brain Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about mental health, psychology, and psychotherapy. And unlike the spurious claims I just made about listening to this show, we actually try to talk about things that are researched and true. If you believed the things I just said about Let's Chat with Revelin Friends, it probably would come true. That's called the placebo effect. My own experience has been that when I talk to Chris or listen to his show, I always walk away feeling like a little bit better, a little bit smarter, and like the world is a little bit better place to be. Anecdotal evidence that all my claims are true. So tuck yourself in and sit on back and listen to a great episode right now of Let's Chat with Revelin' Friends. Take it away, Chris. Chris.